Well, good morning. Welcome. We've got a few folks who are still awake with us, ready to go. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be in verse 22 this morning. Uh, if you're new with us, we've been working through the fruit of the Spirit together as a church in a series called Cultivate. And the basic premise that we've been working on is this, is that there's a difference between living a morally restrained life, in other words, imposing um, principles from the outside in versus being supernaturally changed from the inside out. Uh, If you go to any uh, insane asylum, any state hospital, perhaps you might say in our day, if you go to any state hospital, um, they might have individuals in that particular state hospital in a straight jacket. And the reason they would have people in a straight jacket where their arms are bound is so they couldn't inflict pain or hurt themselves or others who are around them because they have desires and thoughts that are going on inside of them that would lead them to either cause damage or inflict harm on themselves or on someone else. And when many of us approach the Christian life, sometimes we approach it as if we think it's a straight jacket that we've got to latch ourselves up into, and we've got to force externally from the outside uh, to change how we're acting and how we're behaving. But the Bible continually flies in the face of that by saying, no, it's not about putting yourself in a straight jacket to externally manipulate your behaviors or actions, but rather it's about experiencing something in, in the heart, something inside that then begins to have overflow into the life and the way that you behave and act. And so that's what we've been digging into over the course of the last several weeks together as we work through the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5 that when the Spirit shows up in someone's life after they've given themselves to Christ by faith, that the Spirit begins to produce change internally that works itself out externally in how they're behaving and how they're conducting themselves and how they're acting. And the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5 that one of the prime marks of a life that's been supernaturally changed and is being supernaturally changed is the mark of kindness. The mark of kindness. Paul says in Galatians 5.22, he says, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We get to that particular word this morning of kindness. So what is kindness? Many of us, we have this misconception of what kindness is. I'd like to drill down a little bit into that this morning and let's consider, first of all, what what is kindness, the definition of it. And this is how I would define kindness. Kindness is sacrificial love in action. Sacrificial love in action. We said last week that all of these fruit are interdependent on each other. They're not, it's not that you might have love and you might have joy and you might have self-control, you might have faithfulness, but all these things are working together to provide evidence of a life that's been supernaturally changed. And so the very first one in the list is love and kindness comes down further in the list to say, listen, love isn't just something that stays in the abstract, but it gets expressed through concrete realities in our lives, through concrete action in our lives. Kindness is sacrificial love in action. In fact, when you look that word up, In the the Greek dictionaries, what you're going to find is is that there's other ways it gets translated in other parts of the Bible. You're going to find that it gets translated sometimes as benevolence. In other words, charitable giving towards someone. You're going to find that maybe it gets expressed as generous or as compassionate. In other words, there is an internal drive that's moving us out towards other people in generosity and sacrificial love. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he talks about kindness. And if that's the case, then true biblical kindness isn't random, but it's sacrificial. 
is sacrificial. See, many of us, if we've, we've heard of people, you know, we see these news stories of random acts of kindness, of people doing random acts of kindness, or we get the internet Facebook feed of these random acts of kindness that are being done or that other people have done. Well, biblical kindness isn't random, it's sacrificial. Biblical kindness isn't just randomly showing up at a restaurant and sitting down for a meal and going, you know what, I think I might like to pay that person's bill over there. And so tell the waitress, bring me their bill. I don't know those people, but I'm gonna pay their bill. Is that an act of kindness? Sure, it's an act of kindness. Is that, it's a random act of kindness, not necessarily a sacrificial act of kindness. On Thursday, I was driving down to the hospital, uh, downtown at Baylor to make a hospital visit. Um, and on my way, I ran across this individual who was standing out off of the exit ramp, off I-30 in Dallas, and he was trying to signal people to come over to get their attention because he wanted to talk to them. And so, like many of you, my first reaction was probably, look the other way. Uh, but he comes up to my truck and he's like, hey, I, I need to talk to you. So I roll down the window halfway and he looks in and he's like, hey, here's the deal. I've just driven down from Chicago. My family is right there in the minivan. We've run out of gas. I need, we need help. I just, I just need a little bit of gas to get me to Fort Worth. I'm starting a job next Monday as a welder. And so he, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, well, I have no cash. I literally open my wallet and show him I have no cash on me. And he said, well, can you bring me to a gas station to get me a gas can, a little bit of gas, and bring me back to my van? And literally, the man almost begins to undress on the road. He's like, I don't have any weapons on me. He pulls his shirt up, starts to pull his pants down. He's like, no, that's all right. I, I, okay, I believe you. I believe you. Get in. So he gets in, and I take him down to the gas station. And on the way, he begins to tell me his life story about how he had been in prison, and he was trying to get his family off the streets of Chicago, where there's violence and people dying all around him. So he went to welding school, and he learned how to do all kinds of weldings. And he was building utility trailers from scratch with without plans and how he had moved down here to take a welding job in Arlington. They were gonna be staying in an, a, a, a weekly rent motel in Fort Worth until they could find an apartment. And so I bring him to the gas station, I buy him a gas can and I get him 10 bucks and uh, you know, cash back at the debit card machine. And we go fill out the two gallon gas can and I give him the $10 and then I bring him back to where his wife and child were um, at their minivan. And I, I stand outside the minivan, talk to him for a little while, pray with him. Uh, and he was very appreciative and thankful. Now that's a random act of kindness. That's not a sacrificial act of kindness on my part. And here's why, because what I gave to him was out of my excess, right? I gave to him out of my excess. But biblically, what kindness is, is not just feeling sorry for someone or pity on someone and giving to them out of our excess, but biblically what kindness is, is whenever we begin to move out towards the needs of other people in such a way that it begins to even infringe upon our own lifestyle choices. And this is one of the reasons that the Christian testimony in the early church was so vibrant because of the way the early church exhibited this fruit of kindness, sacrificial kindness, not randomly, intentionally. Listen to what one of the early church fathers, Clement, said about the way that Christians who exhibited this fruit of kindness cared for each other and sacrificed for each other. He said, he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. You hear that? He doesn't overlook a brother in need if he knows that he himself can bear this burden better than his friend down the street. And so he impoverishes himself in order to help his brother advance. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his poverty, he doesn't complain. He doesn't complain. 
Clement says, this is what's going on in the life of the early church. In fact, when the plagues began to sweep through um, the, the, the Mediterranean world in the ancient world in the second, third, and fourth centuries, there were many non-Christian families who were taking individuals in their home who would begin to show symptoms and signs of the plagues and the illnesses, and they would throw them out into the street. We, we don't want to contract that. But what happened was it was the Christians who came along in the street and picked them up and loved and tended their needs and cared for them at great risk and many times cost to themselves of contracting the very, dying from the very diseases that people had that they were caring for. In fact, the ancient history records that the, these Christians in the early church, they were promiscuous with their kindness. It wasn't just toward other Christians. They were willing to care for folks who were outside their family of faith as well. This is what biblical kindness is. It's sacrificial love in action. Now let me ask you a question. What if, what if our church today took the Bible and Christian history seriously at this point? What if we took it seriously at this point? Peter Marin, as he comments on what took place in the early church, he says this. He says, at the beginning of Christianity, the hungry were fed, the naked were clothed, the homeless were sheltered, ignorant were instructed at personal sacrifice. And the pagans used to say about the Christians, see how they love one another. The pagans do not longer, any longer say that about Christians. Rather, they say, they don't long any longer say, see how they love one another, but say, see how they pass the buck to social agencies. What if we took the Bible seriously at this point? And as opposed to just opening up our checkbook on occasion and randomly writing a check to help provide food for someone who's in need or to help um, care for someone who has fallen on hard times, what if, what if we did more? What if we really exhibited this, this fruit of kindness? You see, giving money to social agencies to buy groceries for families who's are, that are in need or drilling a well in third world developing countries where they don't have access to clean water and writing a check on occasion to do things like that, those are all fine and good places to start. But what if, what if the church in America today and particularly Sabine Creek Fellowship, what if we took the Bible so seriously that we got personally involved it went beyond just writing a check and buying canned goods and dropping them off, but we got personally involved in the lives of people who needed tutoring, who needed a job, who needed food on their table every night that they don't know where it's gonna come from. They needed transportation to be able to get to and from interviews. What if we got so involved in the lives of people personally that it began to infringe and limit the extent of our lifestyle choices? what we're able to do with our time, what we're able to do with our money, what we're able to do with our resources. See, I have to look in the mirror and ask myself that very question. And regardless of where you stand politically on how the government should be involved in this and what the welfare system should look like and how many food stamps people should get, no matter where you stand politically on all those issues, biblically it's very clear that what God the, the mark of an individual who has been born of God, that the spirits come in, he's begun to rearrange priorities and change their lives, is that they move out towards others in sacrificial love. So what if we love so sacrificially that we reached a point where we didn't build that new house or buy that piece of land or that new car because we were so invested in the lives of people who were in need? Now, I'm not saying that we can't enjoy nice things, 
But there's, there's a point where enough is enough for us, isn't there? What if we love so sacrificially that we reached a point where we didn't have the same amount of discretionary time for hobbies because we were so invested in the lives of people who need us. We're promiscuous with our time in giving it away to people who are in need, to, 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 in, to mentor, to coach, to invest, to tutor. We're, we were just known as a promiscuous people with our time and a promiscuous people with our resources and our finances, giving it away, giving it away, giving it away in kindness. What if we, let me ask you this, what if we love so sacrificially that we reached a point where we were willingly laying aside our liberties in Christ for the well-being of those who are around us? What if we reached that point where we said, I may be free in Christ to do this, but I know that there are people who are struggling here. I'm gonna lay aside that liberty. I'm gonna be free in Christ to consume alcohol in moderation, but I'm gonna lay aside that liberty in these particular settings because I don't want to cause another brother to stumble. What if we love so sacrificially that it began to infringe upon our liberties and upon our discretionary time and upon our discretionary income? And listen, everything that I'm saying to you right now I wish I had a big mirror that I was being held up right in front of my face because I need to hear every word, every word that I'm saying. And I imagine many of us in here do as well. The fruit of kindness that Paul talks about is not giving to people out of our excess randomly, but giving sacrificially so that we would lay aside, we would lay aside liberties, we would lay aside Hobbies, we would lay aside the acquisition of more possessions or nicer possessions in order to care for those who are in need. That's what kindness is, sacrificial love in action. Now the opposite of this kind of kindness that Paul talks about in the scriptures, the opposite of kindness is greed. It's greed. If you read throughout the virtue and vice list in the New Testament, what you're gonna find is that on frequent occasions when Paul begins to elaborate on these particular virtues that are exhibited in the lives of those who are God's people, he also contrasts those with particular vices that were characteristic of them before they came to faith in Jesus. And one of those vices that Paul continually contrasts with is that of greed or covetousness. In other words, wanting what other people have and always desiring more and always pursuing more and better and bigger and shinier. We all like shinier, don't we? Pursuing more and more and more. You can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter five. You can find it in Colossians chapter three. You find this contrast in these vice lists with greed and covetousness that exist in the lives of people before their conversion. And Paul's saying after your conversion, you gotta put that off and you gotta put on kindness and compassion. You see, kindness is indeed sacrificially moving out towards other people who are in need while greed and covetousness is, is continually moving inward, withdrawing from those who are in need insofar as that eventually a life that is riddled with greed and covetousness, here's what happens to you. Eventually, you collapse. You collapse. And it destroys relationships with people because they begin to see through. 
The opposite of kindness is greed. Catherine of Siena once said it this way. She said, cruelty toward the body has its origin in greed, which not only prevents a man from helping his neighbor, but causes him to seize the goods of others. O miserable vice of cruelty, which will deprive the man who practices it of all mercy. In other words, greed doesn't just say, I'm not gonna share with you, but I wanna take what you have. In fact, I wanna take what you have in order to bolster, make my stuff shinier, make my stuff bigger, and make my stuff better. The opposite of kindness is greed. The opposite of moving out towards others in sacrificial love is withdrawing from them and eventually imploding. But there's also a couple of counterfeits of this kind of kindness that Paul talks about here. There's two of them I'll mention to you this morning. The first one is this. One counterfeit of kindness is sentimentality. Right? It's kind of this sappy hallmark kind of version of kindness. It's a sentimental kind of kindness. And biblically, we can't say that we have a, see, the problem with the sentimentality is that biblically, we can't say that we have a passion and a heart for a particular group of people or a particular person and yet sit idly by while they suffer. You know, I've ran into people over the years who say they may have a heart for orphans. I say, well, have you adopted? No. Have you contributed to those who are adopting? No, I haven't contributed anything to those who are adopting. Have you, um, you know, helped, helped fund the, maybe the start of an orphanage that's gonna legitimately care for kids until they can find uh, long-term solutions? No, I haven't done any of that. But I have a heart for orphans. No, what you have is a sentimentality. You have a hallmark version of kindness. It's not true kindness. It's not biblical kindness. See, some folks masquerade and they kind of fool themselves a little bit into thinking they have this fruit because they cry very easily, right? They have a very soft heart and when anyone talks about someone being in need, they cry and so they look at the word kindness and they go, I'm very kind because I cry a lot. That's not kindness. Sentimentality is not kindness. Kindness is sacrificial love and action. We may say, I care for the church, but if I'm not willing to lay aside liberties. We may say, I care for the poor, but if I'm not willing, I'm not willing to bear the burden at burden to myself, you're not really caring for them. You have a sentimental, I have a sentimental kind of kindness, not a biblical one. Another counterfeit of kindness is, is what I would call self-absorbed manipulation. Right? In other words, here's, what, here's how that looks, is that you are kind to people and yet you might sacrificially love others who you can get something from, right? I, I'm gonna give to people who I think could in turn return the favor one day, wink, wink, right? So I'm gonna sacrificially love this person because I can get something from them, not because I'm desiring to give something to them. There's a big difference between those two. When the Bible speaks about kindness, it's not talking about having a sentimental version of kindness that cries easily or is, their heart is pricked on occasion. And it's not talking about giving only to those who can do something for you and give something back to you. But rather the Bible, when it speaks of kindness, speaks of us moving out towards those who are in need, not withdrawing from them and moving out towards them, not to get anything from them, but to give to them and to actually give and sacrifice as opposed to just feel a little stirring in our hearts. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the fruit of kindness. It's a sacrificial love in action whose opposite is greed and whose counterfeits, whose counterfeits are self-absorbed manipulation and this sappy kind of sentimentality. 
Now, if we want to avoid that kind of sappiness and we want to avoid that kind of self-absorption, how does this particular fruit get cultivated in our lives? That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. How is kindness, this true kindness, this sacrificial love and action, how does it get cultivated in us? Two things I'll share with you this morning. First one is this. The way this particular fruit gets cultivated in our lives is first of all by tasting, second of all by acting. You gotta taste and you gotta act. Now the, the word taste here, you, you probably understand I'm using it metaphorically for the, 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 the concept of actually experiencing this kind of kindness. You gotta experience it, right? Now you have to forgive my illustration here this morning. I'm a father of a six-year-old boy. Okay, um, and so the, 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 the movie selection in my home tends to revolve around animated figures, okay, or computer CG generated graphics, right? But I, I remember several years ago when the, when the Cars movie came out and us buying that movie and watching that with our son, um, and he, you know, he went through a season where he just loved cars, and that's all he wanted was cars, and he had Lightning McQueen everything and Mater everything. Okay, he went through that season. I remember us watching that movie over and over and over again to where I could tell you exactly what they were gonna say and when they were gonna say it, the inflection of their voice as they said it, right? I knew I could walk in the room and know exactly where they were in the movie, okay? Because I'd seen it so many times or heard it so many times. But the story goes like this for those of you who haven't seen it. Lightning McQueen is kind of a hotshot race car. Okay, and he um, believes he's going to win the Piston Cup, which is kind of like the pinnacle of the racing circuit. And so he's gonna win the Piston Cup. And so uh, he's, he's zooming around the track as the movie opens uh, and he begins to, he won't go into the pit for a tire change because he's, he's self-confident, he's self-reliant, he's kind of self-absorbed and cocky, he doesn't need anybody else. So he continues to zoom by the pit until he comes to the last lap as he's leading and all four of his tires blow out. And he's there trying to, it's, it's, it's funny when you see it, I can't make it funny as I describe it to you, but he's hopping along on his rims trying to get to the finish line. And the other two cars that are racing against him pull up and it's a dead heat. So they gotta run a, a race off and they're gonna do it in Los Angeles. And so Lightning McQueen gets on this truck and he's being hauled across the country and he falls asleep in the back of the truck and he rolls out and he finds himself stranded in Radiator Springs, which is like backwater, nowhere kind of little town along Highway 66 heading out toward California. And he tears the town up completely as he gets there, being chased by the cops. And so his punishment is to stay there and fix whatever he has demolished. He's gotta repave the road, okay? Now he, he encounters there in Radiator Springs his best friend Mater, right? And Mater is kind of just a good old boy, right? He's willing to do anything for anyone. All right, he is exhibiting sacrificial love in action and caring for people and moving out towards others. Even this guy who wants, won't give him the time of day and Mater continues to show kindness and continues to show kindness and continues to show kindness. So that before Lightning McQueen ever leaves Radiator Springs, there's something that's changed literally, no pun intended, under the hood for him, okay? And whenever he gets out to Los Angeles to run this final race, to run this final race, two of the other cars, one of the other cars is trying to, just, trying to basically ruin the legacy and tarnish the legacy of, this, of the king who's been racing for 40 years. And so he tries to blow him off of the track and pushes him out into the infield. And Lightning McQueen sees this on the big jumbotron. And as he's about to come around the last bend to finish the race and win the Piston Cup, he slams on his brake short of the finish line. And he turns around and he goes out into the infield and he gets behind the king and he pushes him 
across the finish line. And you look at that story as it unfolds and you go, where in the world did that come from? Well, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel and its effects in our lives. See, the reason, the reason Lightning McQueen forfeits the race to help someone else and exhibit sacrificial love and action is because he's been a recipient of that kind of sacrificial love and action in his own life. The reason he's able now to show kindness is because kindness has been shown to him. And something changes under the hood. You gotta taste kindness before you can ever show it. And the Bible clearly Clearly in the New Testament on several occasions talks about how God has shown his kindness to us. Let me give you an example of a few of them. First of all, we taste the kindness of God by seeing what he has done and saving us by his grace. Titus chapter three, verses three to seven, Paul writes these words, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Not a very healthy sketch of human life, is it? Verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Apostle Paul says to Titus, he says, we were really bad off and God was really good and really kind, and he saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ and extending grace that we did not earn or deserve. You gotta see what God has done. Secondly, you also gotta see what God is doing to taste this kindness. In Romans chapter two, verses one to four, you see that God's kindness is what's leading to him to withhold his wrath and lead people to repentance. In Romans chapter two, Paul writes these words, therefore, verse one, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, you're kind of throwing, you're, you're, you're throwing rocks out of glass windows here, okay? And then he goes on in verse two to say, we know that judgment of God is rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Verse four, listen. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says, what's leading God to withhold his wrath against sin right now is his kindness, his sacrificial love and action, withholding his justice, so that his kindness in this season might lead many others to come in repentance. This is what God, what God has God done. His loving kindness has been demonstrated in Jesus Christ and by his grace he has saved us. What is he doing now? He's withholding his wrath and he's leading many others to repentance through this kindness of not yet exercising his justice. But you gotta notice also what he will do. In Ephesians 
chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, Paul writes this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, so that, right, here's why he's done all that, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's kindness, God's kindness is the root of our inheritance. He's going to show us immeasurable riches in Christ Jesus that are being stored up for us to be received one day. One day. So you got a taste of God's kindness in what he has done. you got a taste of God's kindness in what he is doing. And you got a taste of God's kindness in what he will do. What he will do. And this isn't just a one-time tasting, okay? You don't just show up and go, oh, that was really, like wedding cake tasting. Those of you who maybe recently got married or maybe in the not-so-near past got married. Remember maybe going around and tasting wedding cakes and you show up and you get a little bit of taste of this and a little bit of taste of that and a little bit of taste of the other, Right? It's not just a one-time tasting, but rather what you and I have to do is we have to, we have to taste it every day of God's kindness, remind ourselves of what he's done, remind ourselves of what he's doing, remind ourselves of what he will do, because only then does something begin to change under the hood for us. So that it's not a straitjacket that we're putting on to restrain our behaviors, but it's actually a real change of our desires and we begin to act out of that. You gotta taste it. Have you tasted it? Have you tasted of his loving kindness in your life? Second thing, last thing is this. Not only do we have to taste it, but then we must act. We must act. In Colossians chapter three, verse 12, the apostle Paul says this. He says, put on then as God's beloved or God's chosen. And he lists a a line of virtues, and one of those that he says to put on is that of kindness. And when Paul says put on, he's giving us a command. He's saying, this is something that should, you should embrace and that you should embody, and it should, you should be moving out towards others in sacrificial love, constantly moving towards others in sacrificial love. You gotta put it on like you'd put on a shirt in the morning, like you'd put on pants in the morning. You gotta put it on. You gotta act consistent with what you've seen God do, with what God is doing and what God will do, then you act consistent with that as these things under the hood begin to change for you, that you show kindness to others, that you limit your lifestyle choices, that you're promiscuous with your discretionary time, that you restrain and hold back some of the liberties that you may be able to exercise. You gotta act. You taste and then you act. You taste and then you act. You taste and then you act. I'll close with this. It's an excerpt from a sermon preached by Robert Murray McShane. He's a Scottish preacher in the 1700s. And he's preaching to his congregation about this very thing, about caring for those who are in need, about moving out towards others in kindness. And he's talking about it particularly from the financial perspective. And so when he says money, he's talking about financial resources. But we might also talk about our time. We might also talk about restraining our liberties and and sacrificing our liberties. So every time you hear me say money, I want you to also insert time and liberties. Okay? Listen to what he says to his congregation. And I'm reading it because I don't have the guts to say it to you myself. Okay? 
Listen to what he says. He says, what would have become of us if Christ had been so saving of his blood as some men are of their money? Objection, he says, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forces it from me. Then where should we have been? Objection, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give it to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection, the poor may abuse it. I don't know what they're gonna do with my money. Answer, Christ might have said the same. Yes, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, he says, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray to God. Father, we come today thanking you for your loving kindness towards us in Christ. Thanking you that your son did not withhold his very blood and life from us, but gave it freely. And Father, we may share some similar objections about what we do with our time or how we exercise our liberties or what we do with our resources But Father, may you help us to understand that Christ laid down his liberty for our sake, that Christ laid down his time and investment for our sake, that Christ laid down all of his riches for our sake. And Father, if there be a man or woman in the room this morning who has never tasted of the loving kindness that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ, I pray they would see what you have done they would see what you are doing. They would see what you shall do. That you have saved and made a way for them to be saved by your grace, not by anything that they can contribute or earn, but by what you freely give. And that right now you're withholding your justice and wrath so that in this season they may come to repentance. So that one day they would taste of your immeasurable riches and all of your kindness towards us. I pray if there be a person here this morning, Father, who is in that very situation, I pray that you would awaken their hearts and their minds to respond to your offer of kindness, of sacrificial love and action for them. And for all who have responded to that, Father, I pray that you would help us continually taste of it as if it's something that we cannot get enough of. As we taste and taste and taste and taste and taste, it would move us out towards those who are in need. So the world might look at your people and say, see how they love one another. Not out of their excess. But by limiting choices with their liberties and choices with their time and choices with their money. We pray this in Jesus' name.